Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another exciting episode of That's Truth. I'm glad you're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse tonight. I'm Nathan Owens, and as usual, sitting across the broadcast desk from me is Pastor Dr. David Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Uh, Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening this evening. It is a blessing to have you listening. It's a blessing to be alive for another day, and we are here to answer your questions according to truth the truth of God's Word. Maybe it's a question that someone asked you today and you really have never even thought about it, but we know the Bible has the answer to every challenging question in life. Even if it's not directly there, there are principles that can be applied. And you'd like to hear Pastor Murphy's approach in answering it from the Bible, send us a WhatsApp or a text message, 268-782-1454. 268-782-1454 for WhatsApp or text. Or if you would like to email your question, you can send it to truth at gmail.com. That's all one word, no spaces, no apostrophe. truth at gmail.com. And the other option is you can join us on Facebook Live and you can comment your questions or your thoughts under the video feed and they'll get passed along to Pastor Murphy in a timely manner. Tonight we are going to uh, quickly rehash what we covered last week and then delve into another aspect of the Bible and Bible prophecy. Pastor, last week we were talking about the millennium and the important reasons as to why there must be a millennium and Can you just summarize what you covered and some of the highlights before we move on? Yeah, sure. Um, We got a little bit interrupted, a good interruption last week. Um, We were talking another subject. Uh, But we talked about the millennium, and we were coming to a a closure, and we were talking about why it's important that there's a millennium. And we were given four reasons. Um, Let me just restate those very quickly. One has to do with the fact that the millennial kingdom is part of the reward for those who are faithful to Christ. Uh, he promised that those who are faithful to him will rule with him and reign with him. So that's a promise that has to be fulfilled. You find that in Luke chapter 22, Revelation chapter 5, also in Matthew chapter 19. Um, that's a promise, and God has never been delinquent in fulfilling this promise, and therefore it's important for him to fulfill that promise. Uh, we mentioned also the idea of the redemption of creation, that creation is under curse, and um, in the book of uh, Romans, 
it says one day the whole creation is going to be redeemed and God will restore creation to its pristine stage, uh, almost the, uh, the uh, pre-Adamic state. So that is important as well as part of the fulfilling the prophetic scriptures because also in Isaiah 11, Isaiah 35, and Ezekiel chapter 47, there's a reference to the earth being restored and all creation being restored. The third reason we, we mentioned last time was the fact that God has to honor His promises. And there are certain uh, unconditional, unilateral, eternal uh, covenants that God made uh, with Israel uh, and with Abraham and with David. The Abrahamic covenant uh, covered certain things, and one of those things had to do with the land that was demarcated in terms of how much land Israel would eventually uh, rule over, and that has never been fulfilled. And we mentioned that parts of places like Jordan and Egypt and Lebanon and Iraq uh, are part of that um, real estate that the Lord promised. You find that in Genesis chapter 15, verse 18 to 21. That has to be fulfilled. And then we, uh, David promised that one would sit on David's throne forever and that David would have a kingdom and that would mesh into the eternal kingdom that was promised in the book of um, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 to 16. It's also confirmed in Luke chapter 1, verse 30, 33, and then Amos chapter 9, verse 11 to 15, Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 3 to 17, and Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 22 to 25. So to fulfill the Davidic covenant, uh, the millennium is necessary. And the last thing we mentioned last time was the fact that the new covenant that was made with Israel in Jeremiah chapter 31 uh, made promises about Israel's forgiveness of sins, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and to be given a new heart. We know that the new covenant was fulfilled when Christ died on the cross and shed his blood, but we know that it is yet to be fulfilled in its totality because that promise was never completely fulfilled uh, in relation to Israel, but it will be fulfilled in the future according to Jeremiah. And then finally, we mentioned that it is also reaffirms or confirms the total depravity of man, that God will prove to humankind that uh, the problem is not man's environment, uh, the problem is not his hereditary, hereditary, the problem is the fact that man has a sinful nature. And until that nature is dealt with, uh, man will always have a problem. The millennial kingdom will be established. You'll have a perfect paradise, a perfect rule of Christ. But yet, at the end of that millennial period, Satan is released after a thousand years, and he goes about and is still able to deceive the nations. And, uh, and then you have the final battle of Gog and Magog and the eternal state is, is brought into operation. But I think it's important to see that uh, even after a thousand years of perfect rule, yet man still have a sinful, rebellious heart. So I think that uh, indirectly, that is one of the reasons why the millennium is there. Those are four of the, the main reasons we would give for uh, the millennium, and I hope that is satisfactory to those who are listening to the program. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 7.37. Pastor, Psalm 29, or the millennium is peace. Mm -hmm. uh, Psalm 29, verse 11 says, The Lord will give strength unto his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. I know that's not necessarily talking about the millennium, but we as Christians are God's people, right? Correct. So why <laughs> is there not peace? I mean, look at fellow believers in Iran and some of these closed Muslim countries that are being persecuted, killed for the sake of Christ. Doesn't that go against the promise in that verse? No, not really. It, well, in the sense that he's going to bring about eternal peace. But don't forget, he also said, I, I came to bring a sword. Uh, mother against child, father against son, daughter against uh, mom, etc., etc., uh, and, of course, that has to do with the fact that once a person put their faith and trust in Christ, especially in the case of the Jews, it was turning away from Judaism 
and embracing a Christ who they thought was a deceiver and a false prophet. Uh, so it is, he also said, don't forget in other passages, in the world you should have tribulation. Uh, so, and he said, the world hate me, it's going to hate you. So the peace he's talking about is peace with him in terms of having our sins pardoned and our guilt removed. And the ultimate peace that is coming would only come during the millennial rule. But we're not going to have perfect peace down here uh, until we could create a perfect society. But we can't do that because we've got sinful man. It's only when Christ sets up his rule, remove the curse, and then uh, brings in this program of righteousness and holiness, then that peace will be achieved. Meanwhile, we're in a battle, a conflict, and that will continue until the Lord's final, final return. Let's delve into a little bit different aspect of Bible teaching in that area of the afterlife. And it seems to be a topic that resurges and comes up uh, fairly often, and it seems to be something that's discussed even in the secular media from time to time. Pastor, does the Bible talk about the afterlife? Are there? Is it legitimate? Yeah, I think it's. it's uh, I think anybody that reads the Bible uh, must, unless they're reading the Bible to close eye, must understand that there's a lot in the Scripture that talks about the afterlife. Uh, there's a lot of mystery about the afterlife, and without um, God revealing certain things about us with our own unaided human understanding we end up in a quandary where we're not too sure what the afterlife uh, is involved. Uh, of course, this great mystery of the afterlife uh, is one of the most consequential mysteries that you find in the Bible because a lot has to do with what's going to happen after we die, where we're going, etc., etc. And nothing haunts man more than the thought of death or the fear of death. And those of you who have not thought about death, wait until you get to about 45 or 50. Then it becomes such a real reality to you that you become very conscious that you're just here for a short space of time. So in every culture, uh, whether it be past, present, or even the future, people long to understand uh, the mystery about death and what comes after the afterlife. Uh, I'd like to just say, um, by way of introduction, that really there are only five sources of information about the afterlife. Uh, uh, first of all, there's what I call man's rational mind. This is man philosophizing and man trying to figure out exactly what's going to happen after death uh, with his own mind, uh, starting with himself and looking at his own experiences and perhaps even examining history. But it is man's rational mind trying to sort out what's going on. Then there's what you call a scientific hypothesis. There are scientists who have studied death. They've actually weighed the body and until somebody died and then realized that when the when a person dies, something happens, the weight decreases. So something was there, but they don't know exactly what it is. Of course, the spirit, you can't see the spirit. So there's no real test. You can't put the spirit in a test tube. But there are scientists who have actually tried to explore this mystery of death and have not been able to come up with any final answer. And then there are the occultic claims about death, uh, especially those who are involved in necromancy and uh, sciences and theosophy, etc., who be begin to talk, call up the dead and supposed to be reputed to be speaking to the dead, etc., etc. That's another um, area that uh, when it comes to the afterlife that people are trying to probe and remove the curtain, peep into the uh, into the dark room to find out exactly what is going on. And then the, f the, the fourth source of knowledge, of course, is these what you call near-life experiences. Recently, there have been a, a prolific amount of books that have been yeah. written on this subject. And um, uh, the the the, uh, the opinions of people who've had these experiences or witnessed them, uh, they are variants with each other, and sometimes they seem to contradict each other, so we're in a state of confusion. The fifth source of information, of course, is the Scriptures. What does God reveal? Now, you can boil down these five sources of information into two. 
is either what God says or what man says. So all the other four basically is what man says. Uh, so when it comes to this whole topic of um, the afterlife, we either turn to man for final answers to this question, or we turn to what God has revealed to us in his word uh, to get a definitive solution to the problem. Uh, as a Christian, as a believer, I think the only proper resource and the only reliable resource on, on the afterlife is what the Bible tells us about the afterlife. But, Pastor, someone's personal experience is so much more meaningful than how you interpret how a book is written, right? Well, that, that's not necessarily true. You remember that Peter, in the book of um, uh, reciting what happened to him on the Mount of Transfiguration, I don't remember the story in the book of, I think it's second or first Peter, uh, where he said that we saw the Lord's glory, and he's referring to the Mount of Transfiguration, but then he says we have a, a more sure word of prophecy. In other words, we had the experience, but we got something even shorter than that, which is mm-hmm. the, word of the Word of God. So Peter elevated the Word of God above experience, and it's not experience that defines the Word or interprets the Word. It's the Word of God that defines experience and interprets experience. So the Word of God is far um, above human experience, uh, and, and the thing about it, Nathan, is that when you've got conflicting experiences, now whose experience is true, right? And, and don't forget as well that you have a, 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 a devil that deceives. He can take your experience and uh, he can mislead you in your experience. That's why you need something that's authentic, something that is transcendent, something that's supernatural, something that's absolute. And that's where the Bible comes in. So you're saying that in this day and age of emotionalism and experience, people putting experience above other things, that the Bible should really be our basis of truth. Yeah, I, no, I, this has been the the uh, the evangelical fundamental traditional position of the church. You've got all kind of deviant experiences that people talk about. If you read church history, people have gone off on a, on a limb. People have gone off into error, and it all had to do with experience. And uh, those who have st- stuck to the scriptures have always believed that the Bible is the final authority, and we judge. Uh, public opinion, we judge experience, uh, we judge our own understanding of what we, how we interpret by the scripture. Without that safeguard, uh, every man becomes uh, a law unto himself, and every man can use his experience as a basis for interpreting reality. But you need something sure than human experience, you need the Word of God, and that's why the scripture is so important. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth. It's a live, interactive call-in program. The voice that you hear teaching is that of Pastor Murphy, the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Antigua. Tonight we are talking about the afterlife, and I know there are questions out there. I know you have questions in your mind about it. Don't hesitate to give us a call. and The phone to be put line on the phone line. And the phone number to be put live on the air is 268-462-7420. Again, live on the air, 268-462-7420. If you'd rather not speak live on the air, but you still have a question, please WhatsApp or text it to us. You can send it to 268-782-1454. WhatsApp or text 268-782-1454. And for those who are joining us on Facebook Live, you can comment your question under the video feed. No matter how you're joining us tonight, thank you, and we look forward to having you stay with us throughout the remainder of the program. We've got an hour and 15 minutes left in the program tonight. Pastor, destiny is one of those words that secular and religious uh 
talk show hosts and different people, the media really have latched onto. It seems to be a key word nowadays. What is the destiny of a believer and a non-believer? What happens when they die? Well, I don't think anybody doubts that people die, okay? (laughs) (laughs) I think we are conscious of it. It's all around us. But where people become confused um, is they have a problem understanding what happens when a person passes out of this life and goes into uh, eternity. What exactly is uh, this matter of death? Uh, When you come to scriptures, the, the biblical concept of death really is one of separation. Um, every time that word death is used in scriptures, um, whether it's used in a spiritual sense or a physical sense or a literal sense, it carries a concept of, of, of um, separation. It has nothing to do with annihilation. It has nothing to do that we cease to exist. It has to do with separation. When we talk about spiritual death, for example, it means that a man spiritually is separated from God. It, it doesn't mean that the man doesn't exist. It doesn't mean that the man's annihilated. Uh, it simply means that his human spirit is not connected with God because of his sin. When we talk physical death, we are talking again about separation. We are talking about the material part of man separating from the immaterial part of man, or what we call the body separating from the spirit uh, and and the soul. When this separation occurs, the body sleeps in the grave, and that spirit or that soul goes to be one or two places. Um, and uh, that means you're either going to go to be with the Lord, or it means that you're going to go to what is called hell or Hades. Those are the, the two biblical options. So let's talk about the believer for just a moment. What happens then when a believer uh, comes to the final stage in his life, uh, where he dies and where he, his body and his soul separates? Uh, by the way, I don't know if you can help me here, Nathan, but if you look at Ecclesiastes 12, uh, 7, and read that for us. Ecclesiastes twelve seven says, Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Yeah, I, I don't. It, that that verse is so clear. And remember, this is an Old Testament verse coming from the book of Ecclesiastes that the the, the body goes to the grave and the Spirit goes to be with the Lord. You remember also in Acts chapter 7, verse uh, 59, when Stephen was stoned, uh, Stephen said to the Lord, I commit into your hand my spirit. And also in Luke chapter 27, verse 16, we're told that Jesus himself uh, dismissed his spirit and gave the Father uh, permission to uh, take of his spirit. So clearly the, the body goes to the dust and the spirit goes to be with the Lord. Um, this is what Paul explains in greater detail, by the way, in, um, for example, could you read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18? 2 Corinthians five eighteen says, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Um, I meant First Corinthians. <laughs> Not a problem. First Corinthians. Uh, yeah, the same, same, same verses. Uh, five. Five. Five eight. Five eight says, therefore, let us keep the feast not of old leaven, neither the leaven of malice and wickedness, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Uh, I got the wrong verse there. This is where Paul says, um, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. It's oh, yeah. right there in Corinthians. I'm not too sure why I've got that uh, as a different verse. But um, uh, and then he's talking about uh, having the desire to depart and to be go with the Lord. Uh, Philippians, 2, Philippians 1, 21 and 23 
Uh, it's another reference that would help you to see clearly there what happens to the believer. Philippians 1, verse 21 and 23. Philippians 1, 21 and 23. Okay. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet shall I choose I what, what I shall choose, I what not. For I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Yeah, that's the choice that Paul has. Uh, he's aware that, you know, he's in a quandary. Should he stay with the Philippians and minister to them, or should he choose the option of going to be with the Lord? And very clearly there in that particular passage, he indicates that um, if he, he leave, he go directly into the presence of God. Yeah. Pastor, we have a caller from Antigua. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Hello, are you there? All right. Sorry we weren't able to get you on the air, but if you call back, we will put you on the air as soon as you call back. Mm -hmm. Also, uh, Nathan, going back to um, um, Luke chapter 16, in connection with the the story that our Lord told in connection with the the righteous poor man and Davies who died, you notice that uh, the moment Davies died, he's taken directly into Abraham's bosom. Uh, Lazarus. Find, Lazarus, mm-hmm. right, yeah. It's taken directly into, into Abraham's bosom. So uh, according to Paul, Philippians chapter 1, uh, verse 21, 23, absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and he has a departure to be with the Lord. And then in um, Luke chapter 16, you have this believer dying and going directly to be the Lord. Um, the, in the, on, when the... Until the rapture occurs, the departed believer, in, in far, as far as his spiritual uh, situation is concerned, uh, if you look at Second um, Corinthians chapter five, verse one to five, it, it considers this disembodied state in heaven as though it is we are naked and we are unclothed because the body is not there. If you read that passage for just a second, Second Corinthians chapter five, verse verses one, one to five mm-hmm. says. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so, being that clothed, we shall not be found naked. Verse 4 For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. In verse 5, Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given us unto the earnest of the Spirit. Okay, the, the, the point there is that Paul is talking about this current tabernacle that we have. And uh, Paul is explaining that uh, at death, we become unclothed of this tabernacle, uh, as it were. And he's talking about um, we be found naked. Um, that's an expression to explain that the, the disembodied spirit of the believer goes to the, in the presence of the Lord because his body sleeps in the grave. When we read now 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse uh, 4, verse 14 to 16, at the rapture, you find that the believer comes, the spirit of the believer comes with the Lord, and the body is raised, and there's a reuniting of the spirit and the body of the believer. Uh, And that is what the Bible teaches in in regards to those who put their faith and trust in Christ. Pastor, our caller is back. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good night. Yes, um, I heard a minister saying that 
a man while you're on earth, you can be righteous. Okay? Yeah. And I, I, I read in the Bible that no one righteous, no, not one. Uh-huh. And then I read again, our righteousness is like filthy rags. Yes. Could you explain that, please? Yeah, well, um... Basically, okay, yeah, basically, yeah, you can listen to it. Basically, what is what the Bible is teaching there that there's not a, a, a single person that doesn't have a sinful nature, there's none of us that are naturally righteous in ourselves because of our sinful nature. Uh, when the Bible says our righteousness is filthy rags, it's talking about no matter what good we try to do, uh, to achieve uh, a relation with God outside of Jesus Christ, that. Even the good things we do is tarnished because our motive is wrong and there's no righteousness that we have in ourselves that we can present to God as acceptable before God. But we can become righteous uh, through our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul tells us in the book of Romans chapter 4 and chapter 5 that when a person put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God does two things. Number one, he pardons that person from all their sin and, and, and offers forgiveness. But number two, it says that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer. And that word imputed means to put to that person's account. It's like I am in the red and I have a debt and I don't I, I don't have any, any funds. And somebody put some credit in there so that now they impute that to my account, they put that to my account. So the believer becomes righteous not because he has any righteousness in his own, but the righteousness of Christ is imputed to the believer and God sees the believer in Christ just as righteous as Christ and that's why God can pardon the believer and forgive the believer and that's what is called justification it means that God the judge of the universe pardons you but it means more than that it means that he imputes to you the righteousness of Christ and he treats you as though you are a person who is righteous not that you are literally uh, righteous in the sense that you have achieved it but Christ's righteousness is put towards your account now after that happens the Holy Spirit, of course, is dwelling in the believer, and the Holy Spirit's job, because he's holy, is to move the believer towards sanctification. And what that means is that the Holy Spirit cleans us up from the inside and gives us victory over sin so that we no longer are slaves to sin. Uh, we can have victory over sin, though not perfectly, yet progressively the believer should be able to deal with problems and habits that are debilitating and uh, are causing us. Uh, and the relationship between himself and God to be to be um, strained, and that's the Holy Spirit's job. So as we read the Word of God, sanctify them through Thy truth. The Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and cleans the believer up and gets us to begin to think as God thinks in the patterns that God uh, God God thinks, so that the mind becomes renewed, and we we pursue holiness and righteousness because the Bible says, "Without these things, we will not see God." So I hope I'm clear on the matter. A person who is not saved has no righteousness. He's a sinner, and he has a sin nature. The only way he can be made righteous is if he's pardoned of his sin and have the righteousness of Christ imputed to his account. Once that is done, God declares him righteous, and God treats him righteously. The Holy Spirit is given to the believer and begins to move the believer towards holiness and perfection. Thank you very much for that question. And, Pastor, just a follow-up to that. Is it possible for me as a believer on this earth in my human body to reach a point of sinlessness because first john chapter 5 and verse 18 says we know that whosoever is born of god and i'm 
born of God, because I'm a Christian, yeah. sinneth not. Yeah. Again, um, John Wesley, for example, one of the biggest John mistakes that John Wesley made in his life was to believe in sinless perfection. And it's, it's, it's that same passage there that he held on to. But what Wesley uh, failed to understand is the Greek language. It's not he that is God of God uh, does not sin. It is he that God does not continuously commit sin. The 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 Hebrew the Greek language uh, is the, the tense there is the linear tense, which is the present tense, which has to do with continuous action. So it's not saying that a believer cannot sin, but it's saying that a believer cannot go on living in sin, habitually living in sin. That's what the text is saying. Uh, and by the way, when you come to Romans chapter 6, which we are now doing in our church on Sunday nights, uh, Paul makes the same emphasis there, that the believer has been made dead to sin. And that means dead to the domination of sin, the control of sin, the mastery of sin. Sin is no longer in control of the believer's life because the power of sin has been broken the moment a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. So we're not going to have sinless perfection down here because we still have the sin na- sinful nature. But we should be making progressively moving in the direction of holiness and righteousness as we go on in the Christian life. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The name of the program is That's Truth. That's a live interactive call-in program. We still have one hour left on the program, so go ahead and WhatsApp your friends, your family. Maybe they're even in Canada or the U.K. or somewhere else, another continent, another part of the world. Go ahead and message them. They can listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org, or you can go to Facebook Live and join us. Go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, or you can listen online or listen at 1160 a.m. or 92.3 FM if you are in Antigua. The phone line is available and ready for another call. The number is 268 462 7420 to be put live on the air. I'll give that to you a little bit slower. 268-462-7420. If you'd rather WhatsApp or text your question, you can send it to 268-782-1454. Pastor, you were explaining to us about what the the destiny is or what happens to a believer and a non-believer when they die. Yeah. Um, as far as the believer, I just mentioned the believer. Let's talk about the unbeliever for just a moment. Uh, he has a different destiny uh, than the, the Christian, and the, the Bible makes it clear that when a person who is not a believer dies, he immediately goes into a place called Hades, where he is is under conscious, uh, unrelenting uh, torment. We don't like to talk about this. But you cannot read uh, Luke chapter 16, uh, Nathan, read Luke 16, verse 22 to 23. Um, and it's very, very clear that this is our Lord teaching himself, teaching, and we can't make light of what our Lord teaches in that passage. And it came <clears throat> to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. The, the thing that some people claim <clears throat> is that this is a parable. What is a parable or not? Let's assume it's a parable. 
Um, by the way, it is clearly not a parable in the terms of the biblical term because no, in, not in any parable is any person's name given. Yeah. That, that is a point there. But let's even assume it's a parable. A parable teaches something. And whatever you look at the parable basically is teaching you there that uh, two, two people die. One goes to a place of comfort. One goes to a place of torment. Um, uh, and I don't think anybody can draw any... Um, can confuse those those two concepts. Our Lord emphasizes that the the man that died and and went to Hades, um, that was not a believer, that he was tormented. Uh, later on, we'll discuss that he was in the flame. He needed water. He has his memory. He has his thoughts. He's conscious. Uh, he, as a matter of fact, he himself said again and again in the same uh, section that I'm tormented in this flame, and I'm going through a time of agony. And then the other uh, passage we can look at, but clearly that's the destiny of the unsafe person. When he dies, he goes to Hades where he's not going to be a place of comfort. He's going to be a place of torment. Uh, we learn later, by the way, in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, that one day is Hades is going to give up the dead. So the unsaved man is going to be once again um, delivered. He is going to be re-embodied because he stands before God in his body. And then his final destiny, by the way, is a place called Gehenna, the lake of fire that burneth forever and ever. So there's no comfort for the unsaved person who dies outside of Jesus Christ. And that's the, the warning that the Bible gives. That's why um, our Lord was sent to planet Earth to provide a way of escape. That's why the message was taken to the end of the world. And that's why John the Baptist came um, shouting that escape the wrath to come. Because there is uh, a place of, that people are going to go. And whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not, it doesn't change the fact. The Bible teaches that there is a place of eternal torment for those who die outside of Christ. Uh, that's the biblical teaching. And, and uh, we have got a responsibility to teach what the Bible teaches and not try to either uh, twist it, uh, misinterpret it, spin it how we want to spin it. Uh, we just got to take the Bible uh, on its face value because it speaks so explicitly on this matter. Pastor, who created hell? Well, the Bible says that the hell was never created for uh, mankind. It was created for the devil and the angels. Uh, so as far as um, who created hell, God created hell for those who rebelled against him, Satan and his, and his emissaries. But then man joined in that rebellion in Genesis chapter 3. And man will suffer the same fate of the enemy uh, if he doesn't repent and turn his turn by faith to Jesus Christ. Again, that's the biblical teaching, and we are locked into the Bible as far as what the Bible teaches on this matter. Pastor, we have a text message coming from St. Saint Kitts. Good night, Pastor. What was God's original plan for man? Well, if you read uh, Genesis, uh, it, it seems very clear that uh, it was to be an, an increasing relationship with himself um, because God came down in the garden, he spoke with man, etc., etc. I think that uh, the whole design of it uh, ultimately is that what we are... Um, I don't think God's plan has actually changed uh, for mankind. It was always that somehow man would um, mature and develop and improve a relationship with God where he becomes um, very, very godlike, as it were, and finally enjoy uh, God forever. That seemed to be the goal uh, that God ultimately had. I somehow, as a pastor, uh, believe, and this is just a philosophical belief, I believe that the complete destruction of Satan and God's justice in dealing with Satan as God is going to deal with him so this appears to be just before the world, that I think the fall of man is somehow involved in that. That, in, uh, in other words, 
um, I don't want to say that God doesn't want to seem to be vindictive in dealing with the enemy, but I think the fact that uh, Satan came and attacked the, the, the creation of God, uh, I think that the justice of God comes into play and man plays a major role in that. Now, that's a f- philosophical thought, uh, but I do believe that the whole dealing with the satanic problem and the evil of, and the matter of sin, that man is somehow part of that whole process of how God is going to deal with it justly in such a way that he's seen to be righteous and not just seen to be merely vindictive. So I think man plays a prominent role in this whole regard. So you're, based on that philosophical thought, you're saying that God, who knows the beginning from the end, he knows everything that's going to happen, he's just using man as a pawn in his game of having a last say against Satan? I Look, there are a lot of questions that I, nobody can answer definitively is to understand the total mind of God in regards to these things. For example, the other one is, if God knew there was going to be sin, why did he create man? Those are issues that we, we can't plumb the depths of those things. We're just open to what the Bible teaches. Um, but we'll never be able to solve all of these mysteries and all of these problems. And I think that's going to be one of the great wonders of heaven, that we will be able to ask those kind of questions and maybe get some answers and really appreciate the, the whole structure of how this whole universe is made up and, and how, you know, how it operates, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, I do feel, quite frankly, that uh, man was created... Um, to be part of the process by which the enemy will finally be dealt a final judicial blow that is legal and right and seen to be righteous and just, I think that is that should give man a sense of um, a, a, a purpose and and, and uh, in terms of why he's here uh, to be part of God's plan uh, to bring about total holiness and righteousness in the universe. I think that dignifies man and puts man in a far superior position that he sees himself, because a lot of people down here don't even know why they're here, don't have any plan, don't have any design. I think understanding that that, that concept helps us to see that we have a vital role to play in terms of the whole cosmos and the whole universe in God's dealing with um, his own enemies and dealing with our enemies as well, who have become as a result of the fall. We have three more questions, Pastor. Where is the blood of Jesus? Well, if you read the... the um, the book of Hebrews, if you take the book of Hebrews uh, literally, uh, it is stated in the book of Hebrews that uh, he um, took the eternal blood and took it into the sanctuary in heaven. Uh, that is what the book of Hebrews says. Um, as far as giving a locus of that, I am not too sure there's any particular passage that gives you a particular locus. What we, we do know that the blood of Christ was essential for human redemption because without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And throughout the Old Testament, going back to the book of Leviticus, every single sacrifice in the Old Testament was a pictorial illustration of what would happen when Jesus Christ came as the Lamb of God. So what's really important with the blood of Christ is that it's the means of human redemption. In terms of giving a locus and a location of that, I am not too sure that's the significant, that's what's emphasized in Scripture. Uh, the blood is, the, uh, is on the altar. And uh, God accepts the sacrifice of Christ's blood on the cross as a basis for human to be forgiven and pardoned. Um, that is the extent of uh, what we can talk about the blood. Um, I'm not too sure if we can be so fine. And some of his blood, by the way, you know, that fell on the ground, etc., etc. So some of when, he was, when he was praying as well, great stretch of blood. So the question is, where is it? Uh, uh, is one of those... I'm not too sure the Bible is very, very concerned about that, other than the fact that it was the means of our redemption and the means of our propitiation that he shed his blood for us and uh, fulfilled the Old Testament teaching that without the shedding of blood there's no remission of sin. So I'm not too sure 
if you want a particular location, uh, I would take the book of Hebrews as saying that uh, he took his blood into the eternal sanctuary and there um, put it on the altar. But again, to say that definitively and to, to, to say exhaustively, I'm not sure I can say that. Pastor, where is hell? Well, we know that Hades is in the center of the earth. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Uh, Hades, in terms of where um, Gehenna is going to be, the eternal lake of fire, uh, I'm not too sure where that's going to be. But I do know that it's a place prepared because in every reference uh, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, because Hades and Sheol are the same place. And if you read the Old Testament, it talks about Sheol being <coughs> in the center of the earth. Um, that seems to be the location the Bible gives about Sheol. In terms of Gehenna, we just told that there's a Gehenna of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Is that going to be a, a burning star in the future that uh, is confined? We don't know. We just warned that this is what God says, and we just got to accept what God has said it. We all like to probe into these things to find out the mystery of all these things, but uh, look, the greatest mystery of all is is, is God Himself. Uh, another great mystery is creation. I, I mean, it's hard to, uh, from a human perspective, to just imp- imagine a person so powerful that he can speak worlds into existence. When you think of the, the 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 stars, for example, who can comprehend that in our galaxy you have a billion stars and you've got a billion galaxies? Now, tell me who can comprehend that? Mm-hmm. But these are things that are revealed to us, and we've got to. Uh, either accept them or reject them but I think the evidence that there's a God far excels being an atheist because everything we know that has beauty and form and shape and design there's a designer and I think that uh, according to the book of Romans we know there's a God for the things that are made Uh, we're not stupid none of us will ever buy the idea that a watch could ever happen I could never persuade to anybody on planet earth that a watch just appeared or that I put it in a box and I I spend it a million times and it just came out in every form and a single a single cell in your body is more complex than the watch in your hand it's more complex than the computer that you have one single cell in your body now you explain that I'm either left to a blind atheism where I ignore all my rational thinking, what I know on earth, or I embrace what the Bible teaches on these matters. Pastor, one final question uh, from this listener. When will time cease? Well, we we know one thing, that um, there was eternity before there was time. And we know that um, with the creation of the world, uh, time began as far as God creating time. The Bible makes it quite sh- clear that one day it is coming where there be no time. In other words, there be no sun. There's no moon. We get all of our directions. Enough people know that from the sun and the moon, basically. But the Bible said the Lamb would be the light of the throne and God would be there. So there'd be no need for that. So there's no, there'd be a timeless world. That is what the Bible teaches. And... Um, this is something we look forward to, and, and uh, we just, look, most of what we have in Scripture, we accept by faith. Uh, we believe that God has revealed these things. We believe the Bible is true because of several reasons, uh, and one of the great reasons, of course, is the fulfilled prophecy. Nobody disputes that the Bible prophesied things 800 uh, years before, 500, 600 before, and uh, they have come to pass. Uh, and um, the fact, too, that our lives have been changed as a result of putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Uh, So it it comes down to a matter of accepting these things by faith because there's there's no other way, no other basis. Uh, I haven't seen God personally. I haven't seen God. God's invisible. But I've got to trust what the Bible teaches me on these matters. 
In recent times, there's been a lot of talk, a lot of emphasis about near-death experiences, and you referenced that already. How do you view those in light of a biblical worldview? Well, you'd be surprised that some of the best-selling books today are, are books that deal with this whole matter of near-death experience, what they call NEDs, near-death experiences. And they make movies out of some of oh, them. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and the books that um, that you can get online are like, I, I, I Google it today, uh, Embracing the Light, Saved by the Light, Lessons from the Light, Light Beyond, uh, Near Life, uh, Near Death in ICU, 23 Minutes in Hell, and then uh, Dr. Uh, Eben Alexander came out with a book recently called Proofs of Heaven, uh, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife. And, you know, so there's so many different books that are written on this subject today. Um, th- my my own view on that, basically, is that this thought of near-life experience and going to death and coming back is not new. That's the first thing people got to understand. During the Middle Ages, uh, that was so common. As a matter of fact, if you read Dante's book, The Infernal, a lot of that is the imaginary going to death and coming back, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, there are people that use it as a tool of evangelism in the Middle Ages. People said that they went to went to hell and came back and used that to, in the preaching, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So this is nothing new, basically. The other thing I would say about this is that when you look at all of these books that are written, this subjective coll- collection of NEDs. Uh, NDEs, uh, really, they are widely divergent and they are sometimes irreconcilable. Some would say that they went and there was a hell. Most are talking about they saw this light. So uh, whatever you're getting, you're not getting uh, any kind of uh, conciliation between these things. People are given divergent views. The question is, therefore, if what one person is saying differs from the other person, who are we supposed to accept? That puts us in the realm where we enter human speculation and, and human innuendo, etc. We've got to have something more substantial, something we can depend on, and that's where the Bible comes in. The other thing I would say, Nathan, is that these near-death near, uh, experiences are not death themselves. The fact that you went near death, you didn't mean you go to death. The fact that you came back, you didn't die. So you really don't know what happened after you die. Uh, mm-hmm. so this is something that... Less but some of these individuals are pronounced dead on the operating table. Their heart stops and then they they come back so you're saying they really didn't die i'm saying that when you die you die permanently okay okay uh, i am saying that some of these people have been resuscitated there's no question about that you know the people who've been unconscious for a period of time for years sometimes and mm-hmm. then suddenly they come back but they cannot recount going into uh death etc and give you the experience so we got to be very careful we don't give too much weight to these people who say they've been on the other side and, and come back and and uh, the inconsistency of what they're saying is what bothers me if life after death is, is, is as these people are saying you've got different views on it etc and then you become confused now which one is the one to accept so I think we've got to be very very careful about that and, and by the way the only people who ever died and came back never wrote a book and they never had a talk show either to deal with it. These are people in the Bible, like Lazarus, who was dead for four days, and the the uh, the case of Elijah raising the young, the lady widow's child, uh, and Christ raising the the the, uh, the widow of Nain's son. When Jonah did he die? 
Some people believe that Jonah died in the in the belly of the wave. It's, it's, it's up to speculation. Nobody okay. really knows. But the point is that none of these people who we know authentically died and came back and was raised by Christ, none of them wrote a book. None of them did a talk show that what had happened. We don't know exactly what has happened. So I think that we're in a realm where we're trying to... Uh, to speculate. The other thing is this: you remember Paul had the experience in Second Timothy, Second Corinthians, chapter twelve, where Paul went up to the third heaven, and, right. and Paul, Paul was so reserved. He said, "I saw things and heard things that right. I could not even mention. I wouldn't even mention." Today, everybody wants to make a million dollars, and the best way to make a million dollars is say you went there, and everybody going to buy the book. So uh, he was so reserved in what he was prepared to reveal, what he has seen. We've got people today, I think, that um, their motive, I'm not too sure if their motive is totally pure, but I think we've got to be careful about that. Um, the, the other thing I would like to say, finally, uh, Nathan, is that there's only one reliable source of information about the after-death, and that's the Scriptures. If you want something that you can trust, something you can believe in, something you can depend on, uh, you've got to go to the Scriptures because a lot of these near-death experiences seem more akin to occultic experiences and what is called the New Age movement experiences. They're not in harmony with what the Bible teaches about life after death. So we should go back to the Bible, find out what God says in the Word about uh, 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 death and not be guided or governed by what these people are saying out of their supposed experiences. Luke chapter 16 makes it clear that when the unsaved man dies, he goes to the place of torment. Revelation chapter uh, 20 and t- 21 and 22 tells us what the afterlife is going to be for the believer. So we go to those verses, those scripture verses and those passages, and we rely upon those things as a basis for holding our view on life after death. But you hold to your Holy Bible as your source of truth. But what about me if I hold to another religion's holy book as my source of truth and the two of them contradict? How do you reconcile that difference? Well, that's where the battle in the marketplace of ideas begin. I mean, we've got the Muslims, you've got the Hindus, you've got the Buddhists, you've got the Taoists, um, you've got a multiplicity of different um, uh, fringe groups that are uh, apostate from Christianity that teach different things. We all, when it all boils down, it comes back to our source of authority. Uh, there's no question about that. We have to decide which book is God's book, which book is God's revealed truth. For me as a believer, I am convinced that the Bible is the Word of God, and uh, we've debated this on here and explained why we believe so, but I think some of the greatest proofs that it is has to do with Bible prophecy. It has to do with the testimony and the witness of Christ Himself, and uh, of course it has to do with the changed life uh, that the Word of God has in the believer's life. But when it all boils down, it comes back to the authority where you get your information from and what you depend on. As a Christian, I depend upon the Word of God. I believe it's the only truly revealed Word of God, and that is the Bible. And um, that is our position. If a person wants to hold a different position, uh, we will have to compete with the market these ideas in the marketplace to see exactly which is indeed God's Word. And that way it comes back to what's the basis for believing that that other book uh, is God's Word as opposed to Scripture. Pastor, we have a text message from Antigua. Thank you to the individual who sent it in. It says, Good evening, Pastor. Matthew 532. Uh, is talking about marriage, and it says, But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife for this saving for the cause of fornication causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry 
her that is divorced committeth adultery. Man cannot marry a divorced woman and vice versa. Clearly, Jesus said so. Why is it okay now? Look, I think we probably need to do a, a program on divorce because I would like to interpret that passage and go to other passages tonight. What I would say to, to, to uh, the people who are listening, uh, the marriage is a oneness between a man and his wife. Okay, God acknowledges that it's a oneness. That oneness is broken when there's a third party that enters the relationship, so the marriage is virtually over. It's not that I'm recommending that infidelity leads to, to divorce, but a person who is uh, faithful in the relationship uh, has a right, if they so choose, once that, that oneness is violated. Uh, that is, that's the biblical doctrine as well. We can debate that. I'm prepared to do a whole program on divorce at some point in time. But uh, there are two grounds for biblical divorce. There is infidelity and there's abandonment. Paul deals with that in Romans chapter, in uh, Corinthians chapter 7. And I would prefer to deal with that in another program where we'll, we'll make sure we cover that whole matter of um, of um, on, on divorce. I would recommend for those who are listening, uh, get Spiros Zodiates. He has a book uh, called Dealing with Marriage and, and Divorce, uh, dealing, with, with the, dealing with Romans chapter uh, 7 and also dealing with Matthew chapter 5, dealing with the whole doctrine of uh, um, divorce. Going back, he traced it from the Old Testament going right to the New Testament. And uh, I would just recommend that those who may have doubts about it get that book because I think it, it does, uh, does a lot of cl- brings a lot of clarity to how to interpret those types of passages. Pastor, is that a case of using man's written words in order to interpret the Bible as what is common or what we want to accept in this day and age? No, I think what happens is that we got to understand that a lot of things that we read in the English Bible, for whatever reason, we have to get to the, the core Greek meaning behind a lot of the things. For example, you just quoted John chapter um, uh, First John chapter, 5. First John 5, that uh, yeah, he that is born of God does not sin. Yeah. Again, if you read that, uh, it would mean then that I don't know who will be saved then, right? <laughs> but again, the understanding is that what tenses is in, in the Greek language helps to clarify what that means. He that is born of God does not habitually continuously live in sin. That's a different thing altogether. Telling me that I can't sin puts me in a position where <laughs> if I can't sin and I know that I sin by nature, uh, I'm in a dilemma. But to explain to me that that means that I, I, I does not habitually practice sin, that puts a different spin on it altogether. And that's why you need sometimes to get behind the uh, the biblical word, what they mean, get into the grammar and try to understand the syntax of the Greek language. A lot of things that people are confused about can be clarified to a great extent if they had a little bit of knowledge of either the Hebrew or the Greek language. Let me just say something, by the way. All the major cults, yep. all the including the Seventh-day Adventists, including the Jehovah's Witness, all of them got off track because the founders of those religions never knew any Greek, n- never knew any Hebrew, and they just took the English Bible and was misled. And not and, and that, uh, I, I, I've said this in my in the pulpit in our church. I could never come up with a new idea uh, that I would ever push uh, unless. I uh, had somebody, if I didn't know the entire Greek structure or whatever, 
um, to help clarify what that, that, that verse is teaching or what it is because I recognize that we cannot totally express in the English language the precision that is there in the Greek language and the nuances that are there in the Greek language. By the way, we know this. You cannot translate any other language into the English language without losing some aspect of it. Even in, if you do Latin or you do French or you even do uh, Spanish, it's not word for word. The nuance is not there sometimes. So we got to understand that um, a lot of things can be clarified with a better understanding of the original language in which the, the, the Bible was written into. You're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.25. We're talking about the afterlife. Pastor, what precisely is the biblical view of the on-scene world, and especially with respect to the wicked, both wicked men and wicked angels. Okay. Let's deal first of all. Let's let's talk about the the um, different terms that are used in the scripture uh, to talk about the the underworld or the 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 afterworld, as it were. Um, there are actually four words in the Greek language that are used to describe these four places. First of all, there's what you call the abyss or the bottomless pit. This is mentioned nine times in the New Testament. It's a place where demons are confined. It's a place where we will discover in the book of Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 to 3, that Satan, during the the thousand-year millennial king, he will be confined there as well. You find that in Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 uh, to verse 3. Uh, I don't want to just read that for us, please, Nathan. Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 20, verse 1 to 3. Okay. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. So notice he's put in the boundless pit. But again, if you look at Revelation 9, 1 to 5 now, you'll find that this place, the bottomless pit, is, is the demons are confined that are going to be released during the tribulation period. A mass amount of them are confined uh, in that location. If you look at Revelation 9, 1 to 5. And the fifth angel sounded... And I saw a star fall from heaven onto the earth, and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. And he opened the bottomless pit, and there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth had power And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. Horrific. The, the point there, these are demonic hosts confined for a specific purpose. This is exactly where Satan is going to be confined as well, right? So there's a, this, 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 uh, this place called the bottomless pit that the Bible talks about. There's another place that the Bible talks about in, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, a place called Tartarus. Uh, if you read that passage for just a moment. 2 Peter chapter 2, two and verse, verse 4. 4. Yeah. 
For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. See that word hell? Yeah. That word is not the word Hades, is not the word Gehenna, it's the word Tartarus. This is where the angels that sinned in Genesis chapter 6. Remember it says that the sons of God went in, not the daughters of women. Those are the angelic beings because of the, the kind of heinous um, crime that they committed by cohabitating with human uh, women. Uh, God has judicially confined them to a specific place called Tartarus, waiting until the final judgment. Jude uh, Six and seven as well re- refers to this same group. Jude six and seven says, And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. He's using two examples there. One, the, f- the angels in Genesis chapter 6 that left their estate, they, they, they belong to another realm, but because they rebelled with Satan, and you find that they, there's this cohabitation in chapter 6 that brought about the flood, by the way. Uh, these are reserved for final judgment in a place called Tesaurus. That's what Peter tells us. So there is this bottomless pit, there's Tesaurus, and then there's Hades that the Bible talks about. It's mentioned 11 times in the New Testament. And that's the same page in Luke chapter 16, verse 23, where it says, And the rich man died and went to Hades. That's the word there in the book of Hades. Uh, the work of Hades. So this has to do with the place of where the souls of the departed lost dead go in Hades. You find that in Luke chapter 16, verse 23. Could you read that? And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and seeing Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in the his The word bosom. there, Hades, is not the word Tesaurus, it's not the word bottomless pit, it's not the word Gehenna. Uh, the word there for hell that you got there is the word Hades. That's where he went. You, if you look at Revelations 1, 18 as well, um, you'll find reference there to, to two things, death and Hades. Uh, death keeps the Death is where the body is, Hades is where the soul is, okay? Uh, could you read that? Revelations one eighteen. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Okay, so he had the keys of Hades. That's the word Hades and of death, and that is the grave. So he is the one that will bring up those from Hades and bring that up from the, 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 uh, the dead. If you look at Revelations 20, verse uh, 13 and 14. All right, 20 verse 13 and 14 says, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man, according to their works. Verse 14, And the death and hell and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Notice that Hades is differentiated from the lake of fire. Yeah, that's but you notice that, that the, the Hades gave it the dead, and death and the, and the grave gave it the dead. So that is what will happen in the final day of judgment. So clearly that there is the Tesaurus, where the angels that committed the sin in Genesis chapter 6 are confined. You've got this uh, abyss where Satan is going to be confined, and where these angelic hosts that are going to be coming under the tribulation period. And then you have um, uh, Hades, where the departed soul of the lost go. And then the other, the last word that is used in the Bible to describe the underworld is Gehenna. That is mentioned 12 times in the New Testament. 
and this is going to be the final abode of the lost uh, in uh, Revelation 20 you'll, you'll find that um, death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire uh, and this is the final place what we call hell for eternity uh, so there are four different uh, places that are mentioned the angelic hosts that have fallen have their, their place the abyss and the god to Saros. the unsaved man goes to Hades first but finally he ends up in Gehenna that's the biblical doctrine in terms of where the unsaved man uh, man goes you're listening to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. The time across the Eastern Caribbean is 8.33. I'm glad that you have tuned in to CRL tonight. You're listening to the program, That's Truth. It is a live interactive call-in program. You can WhatsApp or text your question to one 782 one four five four, or you can call and be put live on the air. And we have a caller right now, Pastor. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Hello. Yes, sir. Yes. Good Listen night. Uh, hello. Good night. Um, good night, sir. Doctor Murphy, uh, what is the tribulation? And and is it is it for uh, whatever it is? Is it for a specific period of time? Because even though I don't know why it is, but what is the tribulation and what is it? Is it for a okay. particular period of time? Yeah, well, well, we did a did a program on it, but just rehash what is basically about the tribulation period of time that comes after the church is raptured. The Bible said the church has not been appointed to wrath that we will escape the wrath that's to come. The tribulation period is a time when God is dealing with two things. First of all, He has to graft Israel back into His program according to Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. Israel is now in a state of blindness because of their unbelief. But God has promised in the Word of God that the day is coming when He will regraft Israel into His plan. He has to purify Israel. He has to put them through the refining fire as the Bible tells in the book of Jeremiah. So during the tribulation period, He's chastening Israel. The, what, the means of chastening Israel are the nations of the world. Uh, if you read Zechariah, Israel is going to become a, 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 such a hot spot uh, after the church is raptured that the entire nation of the world are going to see Israel as the main problem. Today they see Israel as the main problem, but there's a constraint that keeps them from, I mean, America still supports Israel, etc., etc. But it's coming to the point where Israel will be seen to be the trouble spot of the world, and the Bible says that all nations will converge against Jerusalem to destroy Jerusalem. Okay. The tribulation period has to do with God chastening planet Earth and dealing with Israel. Okay. Uh, the Bible said there has never been, nor will there ever be a time with the tribulation period. By the time the tribulation period is over, two-thirds of humanity will be gone. Okay. Okay? So it has yes. nothing to do with the church. The church is going yes. to be taken out and yeah. then God will deal with Israel and God will deal with the nations. And then... So it's not like, like a specific time in terms of like... Um, uh, well, well, it, yeah. The, the, the book after after the the rapture, but Daniel tells us uh, gives us a time frame. Mm -hmm. Daniel tells us that there's going to be a seven year period okay. where, where the Antichrist will sign a peace pact with Israel, offering Israel peace. Okay. Israel will buy into that, and okay. then in the middle of that period, seven and a half years, he breaks the contract, sets up his idol. 
Very claims true. that he's God. Thessalonians talks about that. But this is all future. Uh, we're not going to be here if you're a believer. So this is not something we should be fearful about. Thank you very much, Doctor. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. I, I hope I will not be here. Well, if you know Christ the Savior, sir, you will not be here. We have not been appointed to wrath. I, the Bible tells us we are not appointed to wrath. God is going to set. You know, look, let me use an example here. It's like you remember that uh, before the flood came, Enoch was translated. Yes, I think I that, that that is a picture of what's going to happen to the church. There's uh, there's always a New Testament counterpart to some Old Testament truth, and just yes. like just like Enoch was raptured or yes. translated before the flood, that's exactly what's going to happen to God's people. Very good. We will not be here. Thank the Lord. God bless you. <laughs> okay, sir. Thank you very much for the call. Thanks for calling. Appreciate that. Thank you so very much. You're welcome, sir. Have a blessed night. Phone line is now available. If you have a question, you can call in. Be put live on the air, 268-462-7420. Pastor, you have anything else you'd like to mention on the uh, the resting place of the wicked or the four words that you were sharing with us? No, I just think it's important for us to differentiate between those biblical terms. If we get confusion, we would be in a mess. And that's why I say to people, and I'm not trying to be too scholarly, I'm not trying to say I know more than people know, etc., etc. It is just that people need to understand that the Bible is written in two different languages, the Hebrew language, and there's a small Aramaic part of it. I am saying that for a proper understanding of some passage that creates confusion, the best thing to do is to go into a Greek lexicon, get your Greek grammar, and check it up to make sure you don't are, are not misled. I, I I'm a pastor who got to interpret scripture again and again in, in in the pulpit. I don't expect my people to know what I know. Otherwise, why do they need me? Hmm. Uh, and that is where uh, they, you know I have to I have to I have to go I have to study further than my people. I have to find out what 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 this word mean. I, for example, I'm dealing with Romans chapter six right now, where the King James says uh, basically that we are dead to sin. The word is not our that we are dead to sin in the present sense. The, the, king, the, the, the little Greek language is we have died to sin. And if you understand the difference between the linear tense and the aorist tense, the aorist tense has to do with something that took place in the past that will never to be repeated again. So that when the believer died with Christ, as far as God was concerned, positionally the believer has died to sin, not that we are dying to sin. I think that's crucially important in understanding the, the, these small subtleties in, 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 the, in, the, in the language. And I think that once you can bring that out, uh, to the people and they begin to understand the truth that is there because in that same passage in Romans chapter 6 Paul tells us to reckon it to be so if you don't know what the Bible is teaching it is only the truth can set you free uh, and if you don't understand what the Bible is teaching you could believe that you're still a slave to sin but when you begin to understand what happened when Christ died on the cross and you died with him and that God broke the power of sin in your life, it puts on a completely different uh, complexion of how you view life now. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I don't have to be dominated by sin anymore because that power of sin has been... But if I don't have that knowledge, I still live according to my knowledge of the old man and I become susceptible to his temptation. I don't resist as I should. That's why the Bible says, reckon it to be so, consider it to be so. Act on it, basically. Appropriate it. Make it yours. From a biblical perspective, do we know what this place called hell is like? Well, again, we are totally dependent on the Bible to answer those kind of questions. Uh, we are not here to speculate. Uh, and I know that, uh, I must tell you, the, the most terrifying thought that anybody can ever have, as far as I am concerned, I can't think of anything more terrifying than what the Bible talks about hell. Pastor, we have a call from Antigua. Thank you for calling. Go ahead with your question, please. Good night. Good program. Thank you, sir. 
How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing? Not too bad, but Anita, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for calling. Good to hear your voice again. Yes, thanks. Uh, but let me tell you something. You know, we know the Bible talk about a drunkard will not enter the kingdom of uh-huh. We know that. Yeah. But what is, what about the government selling the alcohol to the to the to the public? What what is there a punishment to them or there, is there a condemnation to them? Well, I will tell you this. I think that anybody that um, um, is instrumental in leading somebody astray, I think there are consequences for that. You remember our Lord also talked about children. If you put a stumbling block in the way of a child, he said it's better for you to have a millstone put around your neck and be thrown into the into this into the ocean into the sea. Basically, yeah. there's no question about that. People who uh, are uh, are used, for example, take the drug drug pushers that sell marijuana and crack and uh, stuff to, to to people and destroy their minds. You can be absolutely sure that they're going to be held accountable for that. We don't yeah. do things without uh, these people that traffic in, 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 in women and children and abuse children and stuff like that. There, there is coming. We can't we can't be instruments of destruction and ruining people's lives without being consequent having consequences. So you can be absolutely sure that people who are selling uh, these kind of things that cause people to be to be destroyed and ruined, uh, I believe that they are going to be held accountable and there'll be judgment for that. Look, my dad died an alcoholic, and I often blame the shop where he was would go on evenings and and stuff like that. And I know he's a responsible being as well. But mm-hmm. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna sell somebody poison if I know it's poisoning the system. I'm not gonna. Sp- I'm not gonna sell cigarettes where I know that uh, I'm, I'm giving people cancer. I know that. Why am I doing it just for the almighty dollar? Uh, and that's what's all. It's all about money. The Bible said the love of money is the root of all evil. And I have no doubt about that. The man that pushes drugs. Why do you think he's pushing drugs? It's about money, right? And uh, they're gonna discover in that day that there's something more important than money. That's a man's soul. The Bible says. You know, what should man give in exchange for his soul? The, the, the whole the whole universe is not worth one single soul. Now think about that for just a moment, right? The whole universe, all that's in the universe, is not worth one soul, and yet we're instruments instruments in destroying that one soul. The day of accountability is coming, and these people can be absolutely sure they're going to stand before God and give an account and be held accountable for the ruined lives of so many people uh, that they would, uh, at this point in time, are not thinking about, not considering, but the consequences are coming. Okay, then. Thank you very much for your call. And yeah. Okay. Take care. God bless. God bless as well. You have a good weekend, sir. We appreciate you faithfully listening and calling in with questions. Uh, Pastor, a question or a comment. Uh, good evening, Brother Nathan and Pastor Murphy. This is coming from Dominica. I've been listening to your program for quite a while now. Every time I hear you, I'm fascinated, revived, and blessed. Thank you. Keep up the good work. Question? Uh, then oh, just, comment. A, just a comment, just a word of encouragement. Uh, I would like to thank the person who sent that in because, you know, the times when you're doing a program, you don't even know what effect you're having. But yeah. I want to thank you for the encouraging words. And I would like to say this. Uh, I, you may not agree with everything I'm teaching, but I really believe with all my heart. I'm, I, I believe the Bible is the Word of God. Uh, I believe it has the answers to our problems. And I do believe that when it's properly interpreted, it helps us to, to be able to find those solutions that we need to find uh, while we're in this meandering world of confusion. But going back to the caller's question about uh, selling alcohol, 
What is your advice to the individual who has been looking for work for a while and they have an opportunity to serve as a, a waitress or a waiter at a a store, not a store, a restaurant, and one of the things they would be required to do is to serve alcohol? I think that's a very ticklish one. Uh, when I say that, uh, I don't want to seem as though I'm telling you to go in and, and just, um, you know, you've got four kids to take care of, you've got five kids, and this is what you've got. I would say if I were you in a position like that, I would be working my way out of that kind of a situation because we got to live by a conscience. If we think something is wrong, we should not be participants in it. And uh, I know that people have a different view in terms of uh, the alcoholic use, that there's moderation, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I think that, quite frankly, that I think it's been the ruin of too many lives. As a matter of fact, alcohol, the, the, the death to alcohol and the, the, the health issues, alcohol far excelled the use of marijuana and even crack and cocaine. People don't talk about it, no, because we've been normalized and people accept as it is. But uh, the amount of, the amount of um, brutality, the amount of abuse, the amount of kids today that are suffering and the amount of wives that are uh, totally pained, the amount of people who've been abandoned. If you really know the whole story of the alcoholic use, you'll begin to realize that we are dealing with issues, but we're forgetting that the monster, the real monster really is alcoholism. It's the far more serious problem all the other drug problems almost put together. But it has been accepted, and therefore we don't say much about it. When I say we, I'm talking about the general public. But I would say to uh, people that I would not encourage people to uh, ju- use alcohol. And I know that you might find yourself in a position where you have an uneasy conscience. I would suggest you to work your way out of it and uh, try to find something where you're more at ease with your conscience. Uh, but that's a reality. Um, I, I, I just would recommend that. That would be my recommendation. You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program. We've had a lot of interaction from you tonight, and thank you for that. Thank you for those of you who still have yet to send in your questions. We are looking forward to your interaction. That's what the program is about. Uh, Pastor, you were telling us before those last questions about what the Bible says about what hell is going to be like. Yeah, I just want to um, probably share with the audience if time would allow. Maybe just mention maybe eight or nine things that the Bible makes it very clear about uh, what hell. Number one, I would like to say that hell is a, a a literal place. Our Lord, in his teaching, made that clear that hell is a literal place. Uh, where people go after death. Uh, Eleven times out of twelve times in the Bible, it's the Lord that uses the word Gehenna. I repeat, eleven out of ten times, out of twelve times in the Bible, our Lord is the one. In other words, what I'm saying to you is that the Lord himself tells us more about hell than any other Bible Mm -hmm. teacher in the Scriptures. That is very, very, very significant because if you look at what he's emphasized, as a matter of fact, I would say to people that he talked more about hell than he ever talked about love. Uh, I would challenge you to uh, go to um, any of his teachings in any of the Gospels and find out if he talks about, uh, he talked about you loving God, right? But you would be hard-pressed to find where he does not emphasize this whole doctrine uh, of hell. So he talked more about it than than anybody else, and he talked about it as a place. He believed that there's a place called hell, and any theological spin to make it other than a real place is to do the injustice to our Lord's teaching uh, in the Bible. The other thing that hell is a place of memory. Again, we go back to Luke chapter 16. Uh, The man that died knew where he was. He knew who he was. 
He recognized even Lazarus. He even talked about remembering his brothers. So this is a place where we have a conscious memory while we're there. So the, the, the memory is not blanked out. And I think part of the great torment of hell is living with the memory of the opportunities a person would have had to have come to faith in God and Christ but rejected it and now having to live with the times when you could have made a decision. Hell is also a place of torment. Um, again and again in Luke chapter 16, the man said, I am in torment. He says, don't come into this place of torment. Uh, uh, you can't read those verses of Scripture and it would come to any other interpretation uh, unless you come to it with a presupposition that there's no hell but you cannot read those passages of scripture without understanding and facing them very honestly this is what the Bible teaches it's not what I want to believe the, the, the thing to me is that it's, you know if the Bible didn't teach about hell I would find it hard to believe it so I don't have a choice in those matters we are we are boxed into what God is revealing in His Word. And if this were not true, Christ would have clarified it. Paul would have clarified it. And I'm sure that the other New Testament writers would have done the same. Hell is also a place of unquenchable fire. In Luke uh, chapter 16, verse 24, the man said, I am in agony or tormented in the flames. In Matthew chapter 6, uh, 13, verse 41 and 42, he calls it the furnace of fire. In Mark chapter 9, he said, Where the worm dieth not, nor the fire is not quenched. These are not my words. These are Christ's words himself. They're not Paul's words either, not Peter's words. They're the very words that come from the mouth of Christ in those passages of Scripture. He is authentic. He's real. He knows the beginning from the end because he's God. And he's warning us that we must not uh, dilly dally or uh, philander with this, this 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 teaching we've got to accept this teaching as it is the other thing I would say about uh, hell uh, the sixth thing the fifth thing is that hell is a place of separation where we would be eternally separated from God they will that, that be worse than the actual burning do you think <sighs> I guess I, that's maybe I, not a fair yeah, question. Yeah, not a fair question, but just the thought that you're living in a place where there's no presence of God, no control, no restraint of God, that all restraint is remove of evil, basically. You know, people think it's fun to, well, I'll have some fun in, in hell with my friends. <laughs> you're in for shocker. Yeah. But can you read Second Thessalonians 1, nine for, for just a minute, please? Second Thessalonians 1, nine says, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's exactly from the presence. So we're not going to, uh, you know, right now, even down here on earth, well, this is a place of evil and corruption and a fallen nature. Yet God is still superintending. The Holy Spirit is still here. Uh, he still works to his church. So there is a control element where there's restraint. But when all of that is gone, God is gone, the Spirit of God, the Son of God, there's no, there's no presence of God uh, where this place is. Uh, one cannot conceive what that will be, the horrors of that, that scenery. And then hell is a place of unspeakable misery, sorrow, anger, and pain. Matthew chapter 13, verse 42 says there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, I'm doing a study on outer darkness. And that's one of the terms that I use. Uh, every time that word is used, gnashing of teeth and, uh, and weeping, it always talks about anguish and agony and anger and bitterness and resentment. It has nothing to do with remorse, as, as people want to make it. Every single def uh, use of that word in the New Testament, every single time it is used, and used in the Septuagint as well, uh, it has to do with agony, pain, resentment, anger, bitterness, uh, uh, etc. 
And hell is also a place of, of, of thirst. Um, uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 24, uh, he said, Send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. Now, of course, we can say it's a parable. It's supposed to teach a principle. But the principle that's teaching there is, quite frankly, that there is no water there. And uh, we can very imagine uh, what it would be to be in a state where we're being in torment and yet we we don't have any kind of relief. The biblical teaching, the picture that's there, is one of, of grave um, pain and anguish. And then uh, there's only, other thing i like to say, there's only one other place besides hell, and that is heaven. You're either going to paradise or you're going to perdition. There's no such thing as purgatory. There's no second chance. Uh, there's nothing about a parole period when you change your behavior and you'll be promoted or you're going to graduate from there. The Bible says, quite frankly, that when you're lost, you're lost forever. In Luke chapter 16, verse 26, you, the, the, the rich man was pleading for Lazarus to go back and tell his brothers. And uh, he said, you know, uh, for asking Lazarus for what? He said, you cannot go from one place to the other. And uh, there's no bridge between these two. It's a place of eternal destiny and a place of e- eternal torment. As someone has put it this way, as death finds us, eternity keeps us. Hell is truth that is seen too late. Uh, don't let that happen to you. There is a way of escape, and God has provided that way, and that is through Jesus Christ, our Lord and the Savior, by putting your faith in the work He did for us on the cross. Is it possible to be a born-again believer and not believe in a literal hell? Because I know some preachers get people saved by saying, you don't want to go to hell, and so they get scared into salvation. That's not necessarily the right approach. Uh, But on the other hand, can you be a born-again believer and not believe in a literal hell? Let me put it this way, right? For me, it is difficult to conceive of a person uh, claiming to be a born-again believer and not accepting the biblical doctrine of hell. Uh, I find it difficult that a person could actually be a genuine Christian and not believe in hell because, again, I'm not talking about um, Moses. I'm not talking about even Paul and Peter. I'm talking about the master himself is the one that has defined it, the one that speaks of it repeatedly again. How can I ignore the teaching of Christ in respect to this doctrine and still claim to be a true follower of him. I don't, it doesn't measure me, quite frankly. It's like, if I might not, not want to get off on another thing, Nathan, it's like me, um, I cannot accept that any man who is a practicing homosexual can be a Christian. I will never accept that, okay? Now, I'm not saying a person cannot fall into homosexual sin, but to be habitual practicing this thing and then claiming to be a Christian? What a, about a, a heterosexual male who's involved in adultery habitually practicing? Same thing. Okay. He that is born of God does not habitually practice sin. A person who repeatedly practices sin and has no victory in his life is a clear indication he has not had the sin nature uh, not eradicated, but the Bible makes it quite clear that the sin nature has died in the believer, which means that the sin nature in the believer, God has amputated in such a way that it no longer dominates your life. It doesn't mean you can't. I'm not saying we can't fall into sin. I'm not saying that. But to remain in that sin repeatedly and remain. And the other thing I would say, Nathan, is this. Let's suppose a believer does fall into sin and he practices for what? There has to be chastening. 
The Bible says that if we are children, we be chastened. And every man out there that is listening to my voice that is habitually practicing sin and there's no divine chastening in your life, I would say to you, sir, you are not a child, you're a bastard, you're an illegitimate child. And you ought to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. This idea that we can come to Christ and live as we please and uh, because we said a little prayer is just one big deception, one myth. When Christ enters your life, you become a new creature. Something radical has happened. Something transformative has happened. Something supernatural has happened. You cannot be the same person after you've trusted Christ. You are a different person. The Bible teaches that. Pastor, in the last two and a half minutes here, we have a question that just came in from Anguilla. According to Peter's sermon in Acts 2.27, it says, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Did Jesus go to hell? Again, it's on Hades. That word there, hell, is the word Hades. And, and if you look at the parable of Luke, okay, go to the parable of Luke. In, in Hades, before Christ came and, and paid its debt of sin, the the believer went to Hades, but it's a different part. You know, that's where you were comforted. There are two parts that we mentioned in Luke chapter 16, where the unsafe person goes and is tormented, but then you've got the place we call uh, Abraham's bosom. So before Christ was resurrected and Christ uh, ascended, uh, believers who died went to Sheol, Sheol, like everybody in the Old Testament went to Sheol, the same place, but they went to the place of comfort, right? When Christ died, that's exactly where he went as well. As a matter of fact, if you read, um, uh, if you read uh, Peter uh, and read uh, Ephesians, it said that he led captive to be captive, etc., etc., and that is where he took all of those that were there and. Uh, led them up to glory so that when the believer dies now, he no longer goes to the Abraham's bosom, he goes to be with the Lord. So it's not saying he went to hell in the sense that he went to Gehenna. He went to Hades in the place where um, Abraham's bosom is. And then, and um, well, we'll come back to Peter, where it talks about he went and he preached unto the spirits in prison. Uh, Peter does mention that as well. Pastor, another question that just came in. What advice would you give to a husband who is living with his wife and he takes care of the family needs, but his wife chooses rather to sleep with her her 14-year-old son than to sleep with him? I would say that uh, if she is a Christian, she needs to be spoken to. I would recommend if you've got a pastor, it needs to be brought to the attention of the pastor. Um, if you have a trusted friend that both of you respect and they're a good Christian that can counsel you, but that can never be right. Uh, I, I think that that person is a believer. Again, that person needs to be instructed. Read Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, a wife has certain obligations uh, to her husband in respect to her uh, intimacy, and it cannot be right that she opts to sleep with her son as opposed to sleep with her husband. That's a distortion, and that needs to be corrected, uh, not openly, but uh, judiciously and wisely in a counseling session. Uh, and I think that that needs to be dealt with. But I don't think that should be that should continue. Um, to my mind, that is totally wrong. What about in the case that she's not a believer? Even if she's not a believer, I think she ought to be confronted. And I think that the, the pastor ought to be able to sit down and talk with her. Uh, and even though people may not be a Christian, I think sometimes when you bring the Christian principle to bear upon their conscience, we're still a fairly God-conscious country in the Caribbean. We're not that atheistic as yet. I believe it would help her to see what the biblical teaching is on this matter. Pastor, in 20 seconds, do you believe in a literal hell and why? I believe in a literal hell. Uh, it's not something that I uh, 
desire to believe in, but I believe in it because God has revealed it in His Word. I'm held captive to Scripture. I can do another. God helping me. What a good summation for a very interactive program tonight. Thank you very much for all of your questions, your comments. We look forward to next week. Keep your radio dial tuned to CRL throughout the night. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.